Well, good morning, everyone. I was almost going to say good evening. I'm not really sure where I am at the moment. A lot of services. Hey, I'm glad you guys have come out to be with us. If you're a guest, just so you know, my name is Ray Kolbacher. I'm the senior pastor here at Parkview, and it's really good to be with you. You know, for nearly uh, 2,000 years now on Easter, um, Christians around the world have greeted one another with the words, He is risen, and the response being, He is risen indeed. It's historically known as the Pascal greeting, and in some cultures it's repeated three times and then accompanied with the exchange of three kisses. Uh, Now, we're going to skip the whole kissing part, if you don't mind. Safety first, you know what I'm saying. But uh, for the sake of tradition, uh, I'm going to offer you the greeting, and uh, you guys can respond. Okay? Ready? He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. And that, my friends, is essentially the message of Easter. History tells us that after being unjustly condemned, tortured on the Friday of Jewish Passover, Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be deity in the flesh, come to sacrifice his life for humanity, was publicly crucified, pronounced dead, buried, and yet on Sunday, miraculously raised to life, eventually appearing to over 500 people. In fact, it was the reality of of Jesus' resurrection that not only changed the lives of his closest friends and followers, but changed an entire empire, and indeed the course of of human history itself. Now, as some of you know, as a church, we are currently in a teaching series called Going Viral. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a study of the book of Acts in the New Testament. It's a first century document that uh, records how the, um, the, the early Christian church and the good news of God's love and grace in Jesus uh, went, as we would say today, went viral, spreading very, very quickly from the streets of Jerusalem to the farthest reaches of the known world. Uh, the book was authored by Luke, a Greek physician, Uh, who was writing uh, to an influential guy named Theophilus for the sole purpose of explaining to him who Jesus was, what exactly happened to him, and what happened to his followers after his resurrection. And so Luke Luke essentially writes the document with uninformed uh, and even skeptical people in mind, which is why in his opening comments he makes it very clear that everything that happened to Jesus' followers, you know, everything they did as individuals and as a church from the very beginning was a direct result of the resurrection. He opens the document by saying, in my former book, Theophilus, and if you recall, Luke wrote a biography on Jesus. He sent it to the same guy. He said, in my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken to heaven after giving instructions to his apostles. And then he writes this. He said, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that phrase, many convincing proofs, is fascinating. And here's why. There are some people in our culture who suggest that the documents of the New Testament, including this book of Acts, were written by and for relatively superstitious, gullible people. You know, ancient men and women who, who because they believed in in the supernatural and in the miraculous, eagerly accepted the claim of Jesus' resurrection. But today, you know, we live in a more sophisticated, technologically advanced, scientific age where we're skeptical of such things, much more so than people back in the first century. But is that true? You know, the assumption behind the premise flows out of what Christian author and thinker C.S. Lewis once called chronological snobbery. It's the idea that we, you know, we modern people take such claims as the miracle of resurrection with great skepticism, while the ancients, full of credulity about the supernatural, would have immediately welcomed and accepted it. And yet, according to Luke, that's not the case. 
a fact that's often overlooked is that even within the biblical record, we find that men and women, some who were very close to Jesus, were genuine skeptics, which is why Luke says when Jesus presented himself, he had to do what? He had to give many convincing proofs that he was alive, even to the apostles. In other words, it wasn't like Jesus just shows up suddenly and everyone was like, oh, Jesus, this is wonderful. You were dead and you were buried. Now here you are resurrected. This is great. Uh, We knew you could do it. No, that's not how it played out. You know, Jesus had to give them many convincing proofs over several weeks that he wasn't some disembodied consciousness or ghostly apparition that was floating around haunting people. He was truly alive. He could walk, he could talk, he could eat, he could drink, he could discuss the kingdom of God, he could touch and be touched. Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead, and it was just really hard to believe. Here's my point. Skepticism was as alive and well in the first century as it is in the 21st century especially when it comes to the miracle of resurrection. In fact, the whole, the whole idea of bodily resurrection wasn't something people bought into in the first century. It was strange to them. For example, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, there was a, there was a common saying, soma sema estin, or the body is a tomb. People believed that the body was bad and that the spirit is good. In fact, that's what the Greek philosopher Plato taught. Plato said, every seeker after wisdom knows that his soul is a helpless prisoner, chained hand and foot inside the body, forced to view reality not directly, but only through the prison bars and wallowing in utter ignorance. Translation, Plato believed that the human spirit is imprisoned in our physical bodies from which it longs to escape. For him, the body wasn't important. It was a hindrance more than anything else. For him, it was the spirit, the human spirit that matters. And that's what first century Greco-Roman people thought. For them, you know, for them, it wasn't so much that the miracle of bodily resurrection was impossible. It was just totally undesirable. No soul, having been freed from its body, would ever want it back. A return to a re-embodied life was outlandish. It was ridiculous. It made no sense to them. Even in first century Jewish culture, the idea of resurrection would have been unimaginable because unlike the Greeks and Romans, Jewish people saw the physical world as good. You know, death wasn't were viewed as a liberation. It was viewed as a tragedy. Now, granted, by the time Jesus was around, many within Judaism believed in, in a future day when God would miraculously renew uh, the entire world, all of creation, removing suffering and, and death, and uh, physically resurrect all good, righteous people. But no one, no one believed that one individual would be resurrected from the dead and walk around while everyone else was normal. And so uh, Jesus' resurrection was neither expected nor desired inside or outside first century Jewish culture. It certainly, it certainly wasn't a, the claim you'd want to make if you're, you're trying to start a new religion or for the quick adoption of a legend. And uh, you know, just so we're clear on this, the idea of a miracle really wasn't the issue. Uh, a lot of ancient people believed uh, in the miraculous, just like many people today believe. In fact, since you're here, let me ask you, do you believe in miracles? Ultimately, your answer uh, your answer uh, is formed by your worldview. You know what I'm saying? I mean, uh, if, you, if you believe in God who created all things, however he did it, you know, then it's only rational to believe that miracles are indeed possible, that this events can occur, that you know, God can do things, this creator can do things that we can't fully understand or explain. That's only rational. However, if you don't believe in God, then there are no such things as miracles. Case closed, end of discussion. So really, the issue comes down to what you believe about God. Is he real or is he not? Well, over 90% of Americans believe God exists, yet only 80% believe in miracles. Isn't that interesting? Well, here's the deal. I refuse to criticize 
or be dismissive of anyone who's skeptical or has doubts about God's ability or divine willingness to uniquely intervene in the natural order of things. Because, I mean, let's face it, you know, religious or irreligious makes no difference. Miracles are hard to believe in. And you know what? They should be. They should be. And we get this, similar to Luke's comment here in Acts 1, Matthew in his biography of Jesus records how the apostles met the risen Christ on a mountainside in in Galilee. And Matthew says, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. That's a remarkable admission. Here we have another author of an early Christian document reporting that some of the first and most committed followers of Jesus struggled to believe in the miracle of his resurrection even while seeing seeing him with their own eyes and touching him with their own hands. And it makes no sense whatsoever for Matthew to share this detail unless it was true. And so again, for me, it reveals a couple of things. First, it tells me that to try and argue that Christianity was born in a pre-scientific, ignorant, gullible world is false. By the first century, the famed Greek physician Hippocrates had been dead 500 years. The guy was absolutely brilliant. Considered, he's considered the father of modern medicine. Most graduating medical students today still take the Hippocratic Oath. It's a vow of commitment to ethics in medicine. Some of Hippocrates' writings were used as textbooks in medical schools uh, well into the mid-19th century. Many of his observations about disease and treatments are still respected and valid today. So think about that for a second. Because here we have Luke, the author of two New Testament books. He was a Greek, he was a Greek doctor educated in the tradition of Hippocrates. So pe- look, people in the ancient Greco-Roman world weren't a bunch of blunt-minded, ignorant bumpkins predisposed to believing any miraculous claim or story that came along, however absurd. No. On the contrary, they were bright, intelligent men and women who were keen observers of the human experience. And both Matthew's and and Luke's admission of skepticism uh, warns us not to think that, you know, we modern scientific types have to struggle with the idea of the miraculous while the more primitive people did not. It's just not true. I mean, the followers of Jesus reacted the same, the same as any other group of modern people. Uh, some believed the miraculous. Others were very, very skeptical of it. They weren't sure what was happening. They asked questions, and so it tells me that it's okay to do that. It's okay to struggle with doubt. Eventually, all the apostles ended up as leaders in the church, even though a few, like Thomas, for example, had more trouble believing than the rest. Well, that being the case, consider this. If for different reasons ancient people, Jews, Greeks, Romans, the apostles, if for different reasons ancient people were every bit as skeptical about the resurrection as some people are today, imagine what kind of evidence, imagine the degree of evidence they would have had to have to believe it was true, to accept it as truth. I mean, how much evidence would you need to be absolutely convinced? Because whatever it was, these early skeptics, man, they got what they needed, proof that the resurrection was a reality. You know, historians tell us that in the decades before and after Jesus' life and death, there were dozens, dozens of messianic, revolutionary-type movements in Israel. Uh, In almost every case, the leader was killed, most often by execution. And after the leader's death, each of those movements invariably collapsed. Everybody went home. That was it. End of story. And of all the dozens of these movements on record, only one did not collapse after the execution of its leader. Not only did it not collapse, it exploded onto the historic scene with claims of the leader's resurrection, and in a relatively short period of time, this movement spread throughout the Roman Empire. Why? What what made the Christian faith so different? It had to be something, and it had to be something significant. Sir John Polkinghorne is an award-winning physicist 
uh, longtime teacher at University of Cambridge, who's also a Christian. And his, in his book titled the Theolo uh, Theology in the Context of Science, he asked the question, he says, what evidence for the bodily resurrection of Jesus could there be? Something must have happened to continue the story of Jesus, and it seems to me that after that devastating arrest and execution, it must have been something much more than simply a return of nerve on the part of the disciples, coupled with a resolve to try and continue to recall the life and words of their master. It had to be something more. It had to be something significant. Polking Horn's conclusion, he says, I believe the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, are, it's true. They're the prime events through which God has acted to make his nature and purposes known. And listen, the resurrection was not some elaborate hoax or massive hallucination. Peter, John, Matthew, Thomas, hundreds of others, men and women alike, skeptics, many of them, saw the risen Christ encountered him and believed. They knew it was true. In fact, Jesus said to them, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And then he reminded them, he said, this is what I've, I've been telling you all along. Everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And with that, every one of those original skeptics became a sacrificing servant of the risen Jesus. In other words, they went public. You know, they did. They they went out proclaiming the truth of the resurrection and willingly gave their own lives for the Savior they knew to be alive. Here's my Reiki, here's my Reiki summary of that. The unwavering faith of early Christians was the greatest evidence of the resurrection. The way they loved each other, their generosity, their boldness in proclaiming the resurrection in the face of some brutal persecution. I mean, virtually all the apostles and, and every Christian leader, uh, early Christian leaders, they died for their faith. They were put to death because of it, refusing to renounce it, refusing to recount, to deny the resurrection. And it's just, it's just unreasonable to suggest that that kind of willful self-sacrifice would be done to support something they all knew to be false. I don't know about you, but I'm with, I'm with French philosopher Blaise Pascal who said, I believe those witnesses who get their throats cut. So here's the deal. Listen, if you're skeptical about Christianity, I get that. It's fine. You're not the first person. Just realize that you have to strike a balance. Um, to remain skeptical forever is intellectually and morally self-defeating. On the other hand, surrendering yourself to the first idea you hope will meet your personal needs won't help answer questions for you. Say, well, what do you mean exactly? Well, you know, I realize on Easter there are always people who find their way to a church service like this and say, well, you know, I'm kind of interested in Christianity because, you know, I need, some, I, need, I need something in my life. I need some strength. I need some, some security, some foundation. Or they'll say, you know, I'm hoping to find meaning uh, to my life. So I'm looking for inspiration. And I think Christianity can give that to me. But I'm, I'm concerned that if I become a Christian, I'm not going to be, be able to do this, that, or the other thing. And so in many ways for those folks, Christianity isn't much more than a consumer good. And if, you, you, if you're here today, today and you're wrestling with those kind of questions and concerns and thoughts, here's my advice for what it's worth. Don't ask if Christianity is going to give you strength or if it's going to be practical or fulfilling. First and foremost, ask if it's true. Because if it's true, it will give you strength, it will give you fulfillment, meaning, and inspiration. If, if, if it's not, it won't. Now, somebody else might say, well, you know, I like what Jesus said. I like what he taught. I just don't know about this resurrection part. Fair enough. But here's the bottom line. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept everything he said and did. 
If he didn't rise from the dead, why worry about any of it? Why give a rip one way or the other, right? The issue on which everything hinges isn't whether or not you like Jesus' teaching, but whether he rose from the dead. Or as the famed Yale University historian Dr. Jaroslav Pelikan once said, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. If Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. Right? What do you believe? Before you answer, you answer the question, understand everybody has doubts at some point or another. Everybody does. Anyone who claims they don't isn't being honest. Great Protestant reformer Martin Luther said, only God and certain madmen have no doubt. He's right. Even the apostles, even the apostles had them. They needed many convincing proofs. And so far be it from me to be hard on anybody who struggles with uncertainty. But with all due respect, it's not enough to be skeptical and dismiss the resurrection by saying, ah, it couldn't have happened. Intellectual integrity demands you face and answer all the lingering historical questions. Why did, why did Christianity emerge and spread so rapidly with undeniable power? No other religious group ever claimed their leader was raised from the dead. Why did Jesus followers say that? and never recant it. No self-respecting Jewish person would ever worship and call a human being Lord and Savior, yet that's what many did with Jesus. Why? Why did they do that? What changed their religious worldview overnight? How do you account for the hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrection who lived on for decades and publicly maintained their testimony, eventually giving their lives for their belief in some pretty brutal ways? And why in 2,000 years has no one been able to disprove the resurrection of Christ, which today inspires belief in myriads of people with Christianity being the fastest growing faith worldwide with some 2 billion men and women, about a third of the world's population, calling themselves Christian. See, here's the, um, here's the, here's the one undeniable reality. Okay, ready? If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. It changes everything. And it has, right? I mean, it changed the disciples. It changed their culture. It changed the Roman Empire. It's, it's changed, it changed the first century world. It's changed history. It's changed billions of people. It's changed me. Has it changed you? And what do you believe? John Updike, famous American novelist and poet, uh, winner of two Pulitzer Prizes, once wrote a piece called Seven Stanzas at Easter. And in it, he challenges his reader to make a decision one way or the other. And uh, Updike puts it this way. He says, Make no mistake, if Jesus rose at all, it was as his body. If the cells, dissolution, did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindled, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. It was as his flesh, ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of early ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not paper mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, lest, awakened in one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. Now, here's the deal. I'm no literary expert, but it seems to me Updike is making a pretty good point uh, that when it comes to Jesus' resurrection, don't try to modernize things by making it a metaphor, a parable, a dream, or a delusional experience. Those things don't change history. Instead, look at the, look at the evidence of history and make an informed decision. Updike says, if you're going to believe 
then believe. If not, well, as a former skeptic himself, the Apostle Paul said, if Jesus wasn't resurrected, you might as well go out, do whatever you want, eat, drink as much as you can, because tomorrow you die. But having himself encountered the risen Christ, the Apostle writes, Jesus was indeed raised from the dead. Therefore, we who believe should sing and celebrate. For when death comes to us, and it will, in Christ, we all will be made alive. The resurrection changes everything. Has it changed you? Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, it is so easy for us today in our culture to, with sort of this air of, of arrogance and superiority, to look back on, on, on people who've gone before us and uh, just to think of them as bumbling, gullible, superstitious um, individuals. When, when an honest look at history tells us the opposite, that these were very bright, educated people, keen observers of the human experience, not readily taken in by whatever story was being propagated, whatever rumor was um, being spread. These men and women were changed because of reality, because the, rea- the resurrection took place. And even the greatest skeptics couldn't remain skeptical. And when they embraced the reality of it, it changed things. It changed them. It changed their outlook on life. It changed their outlook on, 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 on their wealth. It changes their, changes their outlook on relationships. It changes everything. It changed their culture. It changed the empire. It has changed the course of history. But to make it personal, has it changed me? Has it changed us? My prayer is that it has. Because of Jesus, we are offered life everlasting, forgiveness of sin and rebellion. He came and lived the perfect life we could never live. He died the death we deserve to die and was resurrected to life because of your, your love and grace. And through him we're offered forgiveness. So thank you for what Jesus has done for us. Uh, May we be reminded of it this day together and may we sing and celebrate it and most importantly embrace the truth of it all. I ask these things in his name.